Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we begin a new series of messages. We'll be talking about uh, uh, theology for the next few weeks, the doctrines of the faith. And today we're jumping into the deep end of the pool, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the key concept for today. The true God exists forever as one God in three persons. Now, we're going to explain this a little bit uh, for the next uh, little while, but first let's talk about the idea of concentrating on doctrine and theology. Anselm of Canterbury once said, faith is trusting in God. Theology is faith seeking understanding. And that's what we're doing. We're taking our faith and seeking understanding. You know, sometimes we, we give off mixed messages like uh, the, the, the bed and breakfast and the, the, that they had a sign next to each of the doors of their rooms. And the sign said, please introduce yourself to your neighbors. We are all one happy family here. And right underneath that sign was, was another sign, please don't leave your valuables unattended in your room. Well, which is it, right? Mixed messages. And we give off mixed messages when we say we love God and we are followers of God, but we have no desire to understand God in the way that He has revealed Himself to us. We should have that desire. I want to know more. I want to, I want to understand. And, and so in this brief series, we'll talk about some theological concepts, not every aspect of theology, but, but those aspects that give us a clearer picture of the God that we worship and how we relate to Him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that doctrine is like a map. You, you go further on your journey if you have a map. And we want to go further on the journey of faith, and we need, we need that map. And the bit of the map that we unfold today shows us how God pictures Himself. It gives us a picture of Himself as the Trinity, the doctrine of God. The map shows you that God always has existed as a Trinity. And for the most of you, if I would, say to, uh, if I would ask you, do you believe in the Trinity, most of us would say, yes. I believe in the Trinity. We sing about it in our hymns. It's in our creeds. We, 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 we read about it in various articles of the faith and so forth. But if I was to follow on with the next question, why do you believe in the Trinity? For many of us, we would grow silent at that point. I just do. It's just something I believe. But in the verses that we are, will be looking at today, I'm going to try to demonstrate why we believe in the Trinity and why that matters. And so first, let me tell you about 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing a letter. Uh, in, uh, we call it 1 Peter. And he's writing a letter to believers who are followers of Jesus Christ who are per experiencing persecution, and it's about to get worse. And they're already scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They're probably already suffering. And so when Peter writes this letter, he's not about to say anything to them that's going to weaken their resolve or diminish their hope. In fact, what he does is he reminds them that even as we face difficult situations in life, the one true God on whom we depend to, to go through those difficult times is a being that totally blows away any of our categories of understanding. 
He's absolutely beyond us. In other words, so when you face difficult times that are scary for you, you can trust that they're, they're nothing for Him. And so what Peter does is he begins to write this reassuring letter to those who are facing suffering as he points out that all three persons of the Trinity of God are involved in their salvation and their life. So let's read chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, and He finishes, grace and peace be yours in abundance." All three persons of the Trinity are pictured in that opening, in these opening words as involved in the salvation and the care of those who are receiving this letter. They are described as God's elect. In other words, these are the true followers of the one true God. And the one true God is described in the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father in the order He presents it, God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, God the Son. Now let's change the picture for a moment. Imagine with me that God is sitting down for an interview. Say 60 Minutes has a correspondent in heaven, and uh, they're getting ready to interview God. They set up the lights, they set up the camera, the boom microphone is there, and so forth, and, and the interview gets started, and the correspondent asks this question. So, what can you tell us about yourself? What do people need to know about the real God? behind the headlines. You imagine God responding maybe this way. Well, I suppose you need to know, first of all, that I am one being with in three persons. What? How far do you think that interview is going to go? I can imagine the correspondent saying, hold it, stop the, stop the cameras, pack up the lights, I don't understand this, we're not going to finish this interview. God describes Himself in a way that blows our mind. It doesn't fit into our thinking. One being who lives as three distinct persons. Over time, we've come to call this the Godhead or the Trinity. Let's explore that a little bit. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, John, later on in that chapter, is going to tell us that this word he's referring to is Jesus Christ. And he's telling us that Jesus Christ was both God and with God in the beginning. Now, right away, we're forced to confront the idea that this being who is being described exists differently than we do. He's going he's gonna to explode the understanding of existence as we see it. Now, John 1, 1 doesn't prove the Trinity, but it sets our minds up to be ready for the idea of the Trinity because he's saying here, the Apostle John, if you peel back time and you peel back space all the way back beyond creation before anything was made that has been made, you would find God living in an eternal relationship with Himself. Okay, well, that's a little difficult to grasp, but I think I get it. And that tells you something about creation, a little bit of a side note, because it tells us that God did not create beings, us. He did not create us because He was lonely. 
He did not create us because He needed a relationship or someone to love Him. Creation is, in fact, an overflow of the love that has always existed in God Himself, in the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He created for His glory and for our blessing, but not out of a sense of need or lack. He's always existed in this Trinity. It's hard to grasp. But when something is hard to grasp, it doesn't mean it's false. It can mean it's profound, just like it does here. There's an element of mystery in this description. But that must not put us off, because in the best of theology, there will be mystery. Why? We're describing a God who is beyond us, the one true God. And we must not exist, uh, insist that His essence, that who He is, fit into our ability to explain it or to understand it. Because if you trust only what you can fully understand and explain, you will live in constant doubt. God's wisdom, God's ways, and God's being is beyond our minds really to conceive. It's a mystery. And a mystery is not a falsehood or a contradiction. A mystery is an admission that the ultimate being of the universe is beyond what I can explain. I can just tell you what He says about Himself. And that statement right there is important. Because all of the heresies through all time that had to do with the Trinity have always come about because human beings have tried to force God into our categories of understanding. Trying to make it so that we can get our minds wrapped around it. It's always been, that's been the reason for the heresy. Way back in the beginning of our nation, the Unitarians till today, oneness Pentecostals, trying to put God into a box that I can understand. But the truth is that He's bigger than that box. And the Trinity is how He describes Himself. The Trinity is defined this way. The three persons of the Trinity are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all equally and eternally God in their holiness, power, and divinity. Now, sometimes a person will push back, and they'll say, well, show me in the Bible a verse that, that teaches me the Trinity. And the answer is, there is no proof text verse. There's no single verse in the Bible that says, oh, and by the way, God is God the Son, God the Father. You know, you have to travel the length and breadth of the Bible. And as you travel the length and breadth of the Bible, you find that the Trinity is the assumption of how God talks about Himself. It's not as if some ancient theologians got in the back room and said, let's come up with something that will confuse people for the rest of time. You know, let's keep them busy in their thoughts. No, this, this is the length and breadth of the Scripture shows us that God is assumed to be a trinity. That's how He, he tells us about Himself. And so the, the Bible affirms the trinity one way is by calling all three members of the trinity God. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the Father is called God. He says, but, there, but there's one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. The Father is God. That's a strong statement. Verses like that are all through the Bible. But that very same verse continues with the next sentence, and it says this, telling us Jesus is God, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we all live. In other words, the flow of the verse says the Father is God and Jesus is Lord, but those are synonyms. 
They're kept in parallelism to one another, and they both do the same things that only God can do. They are the source of all things, and they sustain all things. Thus, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is called God. In Acts chapter 5, we have that terrible scene where Ananias and Sapphira uh, are lying about the price of a field that they sold. They want to puff themselves up in pride and, and promote their generosity when, in fact, they're keeping some of the money for themselves. So I won't go into the details of the story, but the apostle Peter passes judgment on them because of that, and it says, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. Passages like this throughout the, 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 the Bible show us that Godness is assigned to all the members of the Trinity. And then there are passages like the one we're looking at today where the three members of the Trinity are mentioned working in tandem. Verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Something like that appears again at the scene of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. It says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove lighting on Him and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity are acting all at once but separately there at the baptism of Jesus. And probably the most emotionally powerful example of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when He prays to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Here Jesus is coming to grips in His humanness with the suffering that He's facing, and He's praying to Father God about it. He's not praying to Himself. He's not talking to Himself. He's talking to God the Father, and we see the distinctness of, the, of these two because even in His humanness, His will is different in a sense than God the Father's will, but, but he, he surrenders to the mission that He is on, and that is our redemption. So, it's tough to wrap our head about, around this, three beings being one, but a mystery, again, is not a falsehood. And the Bible, in the very words that it uses, shows us that it's, uh, it's describing God in a very unique way. When we travel to Israel, and I hope to be able to take you on, on a trip again real soon. We plan these things a year out, so maybe we'll get started pretty soon. But when we travel to Israel, one of the things that we all notice in the hotels that we stay in is that in each of the hotel rooms, and it's true in each of the homes of observant Jews, uh, there is attached to the doorframe a little box uh, a little tube-like box. It's called a mezuzah. And uh, in the mezuzah, there's a parchment that's rolled up uh, and in that uh, tube-like container, and it is a, a copy of Deuteronomy 6 in Hebrew. And the Jews, as they go in and out of their, of their houses or in and out of their hotel rooms, they kiss and they touch the mezuzah. Now, I'm not sure they all know why they do that. Uh, I'm sure some of them know why they do that, but it's become habit, it's commonplace, it's over and over again. But that passage starts out this way, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, M Moses is writing under the inspiration of God there and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's making a declaration. 
We are not like the other nations who worship a panoply of gods and a god for everything, little things that happen in life. No, we understand that the one true God is the only God of the universe. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here is the richness of the revealed Bible to us. In Hebrew, there is a word that we translate into English word one, which means mathematically one, single. You might say a singularity, okay? That Hebrew word is the word yahid, and that word is never used to describe God anywhere in the Scripture. It's not here. It's a different word here. The, the word here translated, we still translate it in English into one, but in Hebrew, it's the word echad, echad. And echad doesn't mean mathematically one. Echad means it is a composite unity, more than one coming together to be one. So that's how God is described. God is never described in the Scripture with the word single. He's described echad. So here's some examples of echad in the Bible. Genesis 2.24, husband and wife come together, they make up echad, one flesh, two becoming one. Genesis 1.5, evening and morning, two components of the day make up one day. The word echad describes that. And here, echad describes God three in one. It, it's miraculous. It's, 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 it's in, it, reaffirming to me to see that the very words that the Spirit chose to inspire Moses to write affirm the fact that this is something different. When we're talking about God even as one, it's not a singularity. It's a beautiful uh, element of the revealed language. Now, by now in my talk on the Trinity, some of you are sitting there saying to yourself, so? No, it's, you're very polite, you're very attentive, smiling and nice, but I know that's happening. In your mind, so what? Why does all this matter? There are some implications uh, in practical real life uh, regarding uh, the Trinity for us. And implication number one is it shows us the importance of our relationships. From all eternity and everlasting, God has been in a relationship with Himself, and you are created in the image of God. In other words, we are created to be in relationships. We, we need each other. Part of us just needs to connect with other people. That is hardwired into who you are because you are created in the image of God. That is why this, this lockup during the pandemic has been so difficult for us because it's not natural for us. We are relational beings created in the image of a God who is a relational being. But it also shows us how important and valuable those certain relationships in our lives that are ehad relationships. This is why, for instance, the covenant of marriage is such a big deal. If you are married, you've entered into a relationship that finds as its model God Himself. And we must not take that lightly. Also, the doctrine of the Trinity shows us a lesson about how we function as a family of faith, and that is that uh, various roles still have equal worth. 
task assignments or roles in the Godhead in the Trinity are different. God the Fa- Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their function overlaps. They, they cooperate and connect for sure, but they do have some different roles to play. Jesus says to the disciples, unless I leave, the Comforter cannot come upon you. In, in other words, that's His turn. He's got to do His role. And this is a model for us because we in the family of the church, we don't have all the same roles. You have a role according to your giftedness, your personality, what we call here at Quail, your divine design. And we try to teach you about that. But that prompts you to do a certain thing for the Lord that will bring you joy and will be part of your life. And it's not like somebody else. It doesn't mean, though, that one is better than the other because all are valuable in the way that God has constructed His family, even though they're different. You see, in summary, the Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture. It's not an extra idea that we can discard because intellectually it's tough going. This is how God describes Himself. And if we attempt to define God in ways that are intellectually easier for us, we actually just diminish Him. Now, maybe you're tempted to say, but this doesn't really matter in the way that we serve the Lord, does it? Yes, it does. Because probably the most often quoted verse that involves the Trinity are the words of Jesus Himself, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, as you go through life, you are on mission with me. And as you are on mission with me, I want to, and you influence the world and bring people to faith, and then they make that statement of faith in baptism, I want you to make sure that you keep the Trinity front and center. I want you to make sure that you, you speak these words and make this the issue, because Jesus says, I envision myself as a part of the triune God, and I don't want you to forget that. That is who you are serving. And any attempt to simplify Him belittles Him and rebels against that mandate. This is a beautiful belief. God exists forever in a way that we can't quite comprehend. And what we should do is allow ourselves the joy of being awestruck by the fact that your God is beyond you and greater than we can ever imagine. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You. And forgive us for the times that we try to put You in a box. Forgive us for those moments when we think somehow You are totally domesticated and that You're just a big brother in the sky. Oh, but You are much more than that. Thank thank You that You are Creator, Sustainer, and You are the reason for all that is. And thank You, Lord, that You are wholly other. We trust You, we love You, and we want to take You on Your own terms. Help us to walk by faith, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.